Amen. Good morning, church. Man, you're here. You made it. Yeah. And those of you online, you made it. And so we are glad you made it and you're joining us. You woke up this morning. You got on YouTube to join us here as those who are here gathered are doing and those who came at 9 o'clock. Man, it's been a special, special Sunday. In a way, it's just kind of, it just feels, it's so different. Some of you guys are looking around like, man, did they repaint in here? We didn't. It's just been a while since you've been here, all right? Um, But we're glad you are here, and we're glad that this room is actually filled with voices again. And so that's a lot of fun for us. We're praising God for all that he's been doing. You know, there's been a lot of of different testimonies of people who've been hearing about Jesus through the live stream here at the Brook and through other churches. And you know, in the middle of all the craziness, we have a lot to thank God for. We have a lot to thank God for that he's been doing. You know, on the flip side, like, we also know that this has been a crazy year for you all. It's been crazy because it's nothing like we expected. I know we've talked a lot about this a lot before, but with, with COVID being a reality since February and us not gathering since mid-March, I mean, life has been turned upside down. Some of you all have been furloughed, right? Some of you guys have lost jobs. Um, some of our youth in particular, if you're watching, man, I just... My heart goes out to you for our graduates who missed out on graduation and proms and sporting events and birthday parties and those vacations some of y'all planned, some of those dream vacations you had to cancel. Some people getting married virtually and like, man, we're just seeing all that and you get so discouraged and frustrated and then you start feeling bad because you realize, man, I still got a lot better than others do, right? You look around, you see others who've had to go to virtual funerals. Maybe you've had to do that. Maybe you've had a loved one pass away. Maybe you've got COVID uh, and you're watching online right now and you're just overwhelmed by that. Maybe you had it in the past or someone you know. Like, and so we see all this and we're like, man, this is tough. And then in addition, we all know as of May, there's been so much cultural unrest after the killing of George Floyd. And there have been so many things that have been brought to the surface. And we find ourselves just torn. Like, God, I want to stand in solidarity with the black community. We want to stand and love those around us, and yet we see so much toxicity around us on social media. And at the end of the day, you start looking and saying, God, how do I do this? You with me on that? So how, how do I do this? How do I um, try to follow you? If, if you're a follower of Jesus, how do I follow you in the middle of the world that we're living in? You know, if you are a Christian today, it means you put your faith in Jesus. You believe he's lived, died, and rose from the dead for you, you might be saying, man, I feel like my faith is in the fire here. When I speak up about my faith, I feel attacked. When I don't say anything, I feel like people are saying, hey, why aren't you saying anything? And, and you feel torn between these worlds. You're saying, God, how do I live in the midst of this day? What excites me is today we're going we're gonna to start a mini-series on the book of Daniel. And I, I, I chose the book of Daniel because Daniel faces the same pressures you and I are facing. Daniel knows what it's like to feel like your faith is in the fire. He lived in a nation called Babylon, and Babylon became uh, this kind of synonymous, this idea of a wicked city. Ever since the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, all the way through the book of Revelation, Babylon is this idea of the wicked city. Daniel literally lived in Babylon. And when I look at Daniel and say, man, God, how do I live as Daniel lived, as I'm in my own kind of Babylon, if you will? You with me? 
And so we, as followers of Jesus, are those who are expecting to say, God, what's it like to follow you? When the world is putting the pressure on me, when things are feeling hot, when my faith is in the fire, I want to know how to live in that kind of world. I want to know how to navigate these days and hold on to what I believe. And Daniel gives us an example of what that looks like. Today, we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 1. And I'm going to read the opening seven verses. If you can, will you meet me there in your Bibles in Daniel chapter 1? If you don't have a printed Bible, do pull out an app. Uh, we encourage you to bring your printed ones if you can. We don't have the printed ones in the chairs because we're trying to minimize that, that hand touch things with the Bibles and whatnot. But we're going to follow along. I'm going to have you follow along with me. If you can, would you stand with me? And if you're home, would you stand with me wherever you're at as I read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. This is what God's Word says. In the third year... Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave, notice that, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the king's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's where the Babylon is, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And King Nebuchadnezzar commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them Daily portion of the food, notice that, that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were educated for how long? Three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now among these, these are our main characters, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we get ready to jump in here, as we get ready to see how these men lived that Babylon life, While staying faithful to you, God, I pray that you would instruct us the same. Lord, I pray that you would reach into our hearts and press your truths upon us. And God, I pray that you would bless us with the ears to hear and with the eyes to see what you want us to hear and see. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated, church. Now I'm going to give you some background to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is considered to be a major prophet as opposed to the minor prophets. And that's not to say that Daniel was more important than other books of the Bible, but it is to say that Daniel's was a a bigger book in the Bible. Uh, The book of Daniel was written in two languages. This is pretty wild. Chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4 was written in Hebrew, and then chapters 8 through 12 were also written in Hebrew. 
And in between, those chapters are written in Aramaic. That's pretty crazy, huh? Uh, it's one thing to write, in, to, to read or speak in one language, but to write, right? That's pretty wild. Now, scholars believe the reason Daniel did that was because those first uh, section and the end section, he really wanted to drill home to God's people, and they spoke But the middle chunk was written in Aramaic was because Aramaic was the, the lingua franca. It was the common tongue that people in the region spoke. And Daniel's message was meant to address the nations outside of the people of God. So ultimately, the book of Daniel was meant to address the followers of God, his people, and those on the outskirts, which makes it a perfect book for us to dive into today. Now, we see in the opening verses, it says that when in the third year when King Joachim reigned, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, Jehoiakim was the king of Judah. This was the southern tribe in Israel. And Jehoiakim was a wicked king, y'all. He was someone who was not following God, not following God's ways. He was kind of the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. And during his reign, God sent Nebuchadnezzar, king of, Judah, king of Babylon, to come and capture Judah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar for himself was a pretty wicked dude. He was a powerful king. In fact, him, with the alliance of another king, took down the Assyrian Empire. And now Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm about to build my own empire. And around the year 603 B.C., he begins his attempt to conquer Judah. And from that time to about 586, around 587, he ends up overthrowing the southern kingdom of Judah, and God's people are led away as exiles into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar led uh, in a powerful way. He was a wicked king. And think about it. Daniel was captured sometime in that time frame and led away as an exile into Babylon. This is Daniel's back. Nebuchadnezzar brings them. He talks to one of his eunuchs. You see there in verse 3, his chief eunuch, named Ashpenaz. Now, a eunuch is someone through birth or through a surgical procedure um, had, had a procedure done to them that takes away their sexual drive and their, their ability to reproduce. Therefore, kings viewed eunuchs as kind of safe people to utilize to help lead in their nation because they were devoted to the king. They were undistracted by relationships, if you know what I mean. And so eunuchs were deemed to be trustworthy. Nebuchadnezzar tells the eunuch to set aside certain youth from those they captured for his purposes. This is where the story gets interesting. Notice there in verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz to take these people, it says, from the, both the royal family and of the nobility. You see that at the end of verse 3. Youths without blemish and of good appearance. Now, up to this point, those who were selected had nothing to do with why they were selected. If they were of the royal family, they were born into it. They didn't choose it, right? For those who were of the nobility, they were born into it. They didn't choose it. Those who were of, quote, good appearance were born with those looks. They didn't choose it. Everything about them up to this point was given to them. Furthermore, those, it says, without blemish, of good appearance, of, they were skillful in all wisdom and endowed with knowledge and so forth. They were people who were given abilities most pretty much from birth. And so those who were selected 
had no, could take no pride in being selected. Now, I find this to be fascinating because ultimately, Daniel and his three friends, uh, they're named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were people of privilege. They were young men who were selected based on nothing of their own, but given a tremendous task. They were given the opportunity to be trained under the Babylonian law to be used for the king's service. What's really telling here, though, as he's doing this, he's trying, the king is trying to set a tone. He wants to put these people under his subjugation. But we also notice in verse 2, the king also doesn't only want to put the people under his subjugation, but also their God. You see, when he went into Judah and conquered God's people, it says here that he took away some of the vessels, in verse 2, of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. I don't know if you all saw that right there. What Nebuchadnezzar did was this. When he came to Israel and conquered Judah, the king Nebuchadnezzar believed that he was victorious because he and his God defeated Judah and their God. But Daniel says something different. He says in verse 2 that the Lord gave God's people into Nebuchadnezzar's hand because Daniel recognized that they were conquered because they were wicked. And so from the very beginning of this book, there are two things at war. Nebuchadnezzar's belief that he is the king and that his kingdom will remain, and Daniel's belief that his God is the king and that his God's kingdom will remain. From the opening verses, the book of Daniel puts this before us. It's a book about who's really in charge. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in charge. And because of that, he grabs these youth. He tells the eunuch to select them, to feed them from his own table the delicacies of Babylon and the wine from Babylon, and to train them in the education of Babylon. And after three years, he would select who he wants to help lead in his kingdom. So this is what the king does. He comes here with this plan. But in this plan, he also renames these young men. Notice, to the Daniel, he gives the name Belteshazzar. Now, in Daniel's name, notice the last two letters, L. E-L. That comes from the word Elohim. Because Daniel's name means, in Hebrew, God is my judge. But he is renamed Belteshazzar, which is a prayer to the Babylonian God saying, protect the king. Same is true of Hananiah, Hananiah. That ending Yah stands for Yahweh. Hananiah's Hebrew name means Yahweh has been gracious. But his name is changed to Shadrach, which means he's at the command of Aku, which is a god of the Babylonians. But the same is true of Mishael, whose name means who is what God is. That's pretty dope, right? His, his name is rebranded to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is, the God of the Babylonians. And then there's Azariah, whose name means Yahweh has helped. Changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, the God of Babylon. I want you all to see what's happening here. 
These four young men have their faith placed in the fire because they are taken into a foreign land, re-educated in the thinking of this pagan land, and then they are rebranded, if you will. They are given new names to live by because their old names represented their faith. And so now they want to change what these young men believe. They want to rebrand them. Now you see the same thing happening in our own day and age, don't you? A lot of companies rebranding themselves right now because they're realizing a lot of their, their, uh, their, uh, their, uh, what's it, their stories have kind of racist backgrounds. You, th- you see this happening with the Washington Redskins football team, right? The name Redskins is a, is a racial slur that they've held on to as the name of their team. We see bands like Lady Antebellum rebranding their names or Aunt Jemima Syrup and Uncle Ben's Rice. They're, they're rebranding their companies because they're, they're, they're realizing or they're facing the heat that their names have kind of racist backgrounds. But what I find so fascinating is that some of these companies have known this all along. In fact, just a few years ago, the Washington Redskins were being sued because their, names were, their name was inherently racist. But at the time, their owner chose to keep the team name and not rebrand it. But a couple weeks ago, FedEx, which is the highest uh, endorsing company that supports the Redskins financially, said, hey, you need to reconsider. We might pull back our financial support. Money talks, y'all. The Washington Redskins put out a release saying, we're going to revisit the name that our team is held by. Here's the thing. The Washington Redskins may change their name, but all along we know they're only doing it because of the pressure they're facing. Rebranding doesn't change the heart of the person who has the name. Rebranding doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a change of heart. All it means is you're changing something on the exterior. When we look at Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, the king rebranded them, but all he did was change their name. And we're about to find that these four men said, you can change my name, but y'all ain't changing our hearts. I don't know if you hear me, but these men were about to say, hey, who we are is not changed by what you call us. Who we are is not changed by what you teach us. You can change our name, but you can't change our faith. You can change our education, but you can't change my conviction. As these four men are there with their faith in the fire, we're about to see how they're going to live this Babylon life. We're about to see how they're navigating this tough terrain, much like you and I are trying to navigate today. And what we're about to say, see is that these were young men, youths of conviction. I love that idea of being a youth. You see, the word youth can refer to what we know as teenagers or adolescents or even a young adult. But whatever the case was, these were young people. And these young people were there under the greatest societal pressure. Exiles in the greatest and most powerful nation in the region. And what would they do when their faith was facing the heat? Well, we find this. In verse 8. But, notice that contrast. But Daniel resolved 
that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. We're about to find in Daniel and these young men that they understood that conviction must win over conformity, church. I don't know if y'all hear me because it's a little quiet here. I don't hear y'all through the live stream, right? Conviction must win over conformity. They were told to conform, and Daniel said, hey, you could educate us, sure. You you could teach us that language, sure. You can even rename us. But what you're telling me in terms of eating this king's food is crossing a line I'm not willing to cross. My conviction won't let me conform to that. It says that he will not let himself be defiled. The word defile should trigger in our minds the idea of what we call holiness codes in the Old Testament. It's basically this. God set apart his people, and he's saying, hey, it comes to what you eat and how you do it, there are certain restrictions I'm having because this makes you different than the nations around you. Now, we're not given specifics. We don't know what it was about the king's food. We don't know what it was about the king's wine that made Daniel concerned. But what we do know is Daniel believed that if he took that food, he would be defiling himself and going against his God. He would somehow be aligning himself with Nebuchadnezzar and their gods over against his God. Now, God's people weren't told, were told they couldn't eat pork. And I'm thinking, Daniel, you could have easily slipped yourself a piece of bacon here, right? Hey, no judgment, man. Like, right, it's bacon. But Daniel's like... This is not about my health, but it's about my heart. It's about what I believe. And Daniel had conviction. In fact, he goes on to request, instead of giving us these delicacies, we want you to give us vegetables to eat. Now, the word vegetables literally means that which is sown. So it could refer to fruit, because those are seeds that were sown, or vegetables, or, or beans, or kidney beans, or, or gondolas, right? This, this is what Daniel wanted to eat, and you can't, you can't judge him for it. But, but for him, it was a matter of conviction. What I love about Daniel is that his conviction is also contagious. See, when we live in Babylon, people are watching us. A couple of weeks ago, my family, we did a road trip to Colorado, and we came to this place where there was a beautiful lake, and there was a mountainous background around it. I'll tell you more about it in a moment. But this lake was still... And as we see this lake there still, I was admiring it, admiring the reflection. And of course, what did my kids want to do? They wanted to throw a rock in it. Hey, Poppy, can we throw a rock? I'm like, but, but it's so still. And I'm looking at them like, man, we're on vacation. Throw the rock, kid, right? So one of them they threw a rock into this lake, and there it splashed. Now, what was so amazing was to see it splash big right where the rock dropped, and slowly that ripple came came and went and actually reached the shore. You see, conviction in Babylon has ripple effects on others who say, man, your faith moved me to walk in faith. Daniel has conviction. He says, I'm not going to do it. But I'm wondering, Daniel, where did this come from? where, Where did this conviction come from? You're young for one. You're a young person. You're a young person 
with dashed dreams. You're a young person who's taken out of your homeland as a prisoner of war, taken thousand miles away to a place that speaks a different language. Daniel saw his house get burned down. He saw his friends and neighbors get killed when Babylon ransacked Jerusalem. Daniel saw his people shamed. He saw the temple of his God get purged by a foreign army. And yet, Daniel has conviction? Where does that come from? We're not told right away, but we can read between the lines as we read the rest of the book of Daniel because this is the same Daniel we know as a Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was placed in that den in chapter 6 because Daniel chose to pray when it was outlawed. Daniel was a man of prayer. And we could only believe here, as we read here, he must have been a young person of prayer. Daniel was also a young person of God's word. We know this because he knew God's law because he knew what he would eat would defile him. So Daniel knew God's word. Daniel knew God through prayer, and those things informed his faith. And he knew God's character so that his faith and his belief in God was not dependent on the circumstances around him. His life can be exiled, but his faith will not be exiled. Just like your life can be quarantined, but your faith doesn't have to be quarantined. This is what Daniel did, and conviction won over conformity. And what does God do? But gives him favor. He gives him influence in verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuch in verse 10 said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. And why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. You see, Daniel's conviction not only was one that won over conformity, but Daniel's conviction is one that would win over comfort. Daniel believed even at the expense of his own comfort. Daniel says, hey, I can't eat that. And the eunuch's like, yo, you, you know, you, you got to work with me here. What does he tell him? He says, he says notice that he says, I fear, this is what the eunuch is saying, I fear my lord, the king. And I can imagine Daniel saying, true, but I fear my lord, the king, and I can't eat that food. And this guy's like, but look, man, if you don't look good to the king, it's my head that's going to be cut off, not yours. And Daniel's like, look, I know that there's risks involved here. I know my life could be in danger. But for me, my faith and my conviction is going to win over my comforts. I want to please my God, the king, more than you want to please your God, the king. I can't live with myself if I don't do this. Daniel had courage and refused to live for comfort. Look, church, you and I are facing these things all the time. People are telling you, stay quiet. 
Don't tell people about Jesus. Don't rock the boat because if you do so, things are going to get a little uncomfortable. Don't stand up for what God stands up for because people might judge you. Don't stand up for injustice. Don't stand up for black lives. Don't stand up for the poor because people are going to perceive you a certain way. But when we say, look, my conviction is what God says and what he teaches me. And even if things get uncomfortable, I'm going to hold on to that. This is what he chooses. Look, if your personal comfort is your highest value, you will drop your conviction on a dime. But if your conviction is your highest value, you will sacrifice your comfort all the time. Where are you at when it comes to that? Daniel had a biblically informed conviction that says, I won't conform and I won't strive for comfort. I'm going to strive for my God. And God gave him favor. The guy's like, all right, I'm going to work with you here. I love that idea there in verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Now, I want to say something here about that because we can misunderstand what this means. Now, what happens here is clear. Daniel's faithfulness led to favor, right? It's it's clear here in the text. But we got to understand something, that our faithfulness leads to God's favor. But God's favor does not always produce humanity's favor. In this case, it did. Daniel is received. But not to give you too much of a spoiler, but two chapters later, his buddies are thrown into a fire for the same faith. Did they not have God's favor? They did. You see, when we set our eyes on God and say, God, I want to live for you. I want to please you. And God say, hey, you have my favor. You have my blessing. And sometimes that God causes you to prosper on earth. And other times it causes you to get persecuted on earth. But you've got my favor. Daniel and his three friends held on to their conviction. And it was contagious. But that's not all that happens here. Not only did their conviction win conformity and comfort, but their conviction would also produce a fervent courage. See, this is what I love about this. Because Daniel goes on to tell them, look, test us then for 10 days. Just give us the food that we're requesting for 10 days. And after 10 days, see how we look. If we don't look good, all right. But if things are working out, would you let us continue on? That takes some courage because they're believing that after 10 days, God's going to bless them and, and the people are going to be like, hey, you're, you're, looking, you're looking good. That, that, that's, a, that's a courageous kind of faith. Not only that, but then Daniel had to think, if we do look good in his eyes, we got to keep this diet for the next three years. Ultimately, Daniel's like, look, my conviction is not going away. And I'm going to be courageous no matter the cost. And I'm going to follow through with it. Well, what happens? We see there in verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. This idea of fatter in flesh, they were full. They looked robust. They looked healthy. And they noticed it even only after 10 days. And so the steward in verse 16 took away their food 
and the wine they were to drink and gave them their vegetables, their food which was sown. So what happens? After three years, in verse 17, those four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Who gave them that? What does verse 17 say? God gave them that. It's not like Daniel's like, look, Daniel wrote these, these words. It's not like he's like, man, and after those three years of eating this, that which is sown, we earned our wisdom. We earned our learning. We got it because we did this. Now, Daniel knows what's up. He knows he is who he is because God is who God is. And all that he has has come from him. He didn't work for it. God blessed him. And yes, God used his faithfulness. God used his conviction. But God gave him what he gave him. Now, some of y'all might be interested in the Broadway musical Hamilton. My family enjoys it. We, we like it. We're into it. There's a song in Hamilton where Aaron Burr is talking about Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton seems to always prosper wherever he's at. And Burr is scratching his head like, how is this happening? How is this guy always succeeding wherever he's at? And in a song called Nonstop, Aaron Burr says this. How do we account for his rise to the top? He says, man, the man is nonstop. This is what he says. And I'm thinking, man, if a musical is written on the life of Daniel, and we're looking at his rise to the top, and they said, how do we account for his rise to the top? You'd have to say, man, his God is nonstop. His God is always working. His God is doing three things in his life. And ain't no one going to get credit for it but the God who gave it to Daniel. And Daniel would not push it away. Him and his three friends would say, you know, raise a glass, right, to the four of us. Tomorrow there's going to be more of us, right, who are be living out this life of conviction and faith in the midst of the fire. But what I also love about Daniel, in his writing, he's not only going to give God credit here in chapter 1, but in chapter 2, verse 28, he says, there is a God in the heavens who reveals mysteries. In chapter 3, verse 17, talking about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're the ones who say, God is the one whom we serve, and he is able. In chapter 4, verse 29, Daniel says, know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And chapter by chapter, Daniel is constantly using his privilege and his newfound position of authority to declare that his God is the king and his God's kingdom will endure. That's what Daniel does. After three years, he's brought before King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 18. And in verse 19, the king sees that these four young men are head and shoulders above everyone else. And it says in verse 20, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's pretty amazing. Let me tell you this. King Cyrus was not a Babylonian king. He was a Persian king. What we find is, as Daniel's faith is in the fire here, and it would be the rest of his life, 
As Daniel is faithful to his God, God places Daniel in a place where Daniel outlives the king who tried to get him to conform to him. Daniel, life, his life is like a, a, a billboard that's signifying whose kingdom endures. Who's the king of all kings? Daniel outlives Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel outlives the nation of Babylon. Daniel sees this because he's a man of conviction who follows his God wherever his God would take him. We're going to see in the chapters to come, Daniel's life was not an easy life. Nebuchadnezzar gave him great authority and power in Babylon. But that didn't mean his faith would not be put to the test. He had to press through. So I mentioned to you guys a few weeks ago we were in Colorado. And as we were there and as we were researching in advance, everything we read and everything everyone told us, and we asked them, hey, where do we need to go in the Rocky Mountain National Park? People, without exception, said, you got to go and hike to Emerald Lake. I said, all right, let's look into this. Now, as we researched it, Emerald Lake is 10,000 feet above sea level. It's high up there. And people told us, hey, it's going to be a hard hike. You're going to get tired. You're going to get out of breath. You need to have plenty of water to stay hydrated. And the higher you get, it's going to get colder. So we prepared ourselves mentally. We even practiced a few different hikes the days before. And now we came over to get ready to do this Emerald Lake hike. And as we started it, it was precisely what they said. It was hard. We walked up that mountain, and we sometimes the, the path was flat, and other times it was a very gradual incline where you don't even notice it, but you're like, my legs are burning here. And then there's other times where you're just stair-stepping it, and you're out of breath because of the altitude. But what people kept saying is, it's going to be hard, but the views you're going to see are going to be worth it. And so we're having in the back of our mind is, hey, everyone is telling us this is it. Now, as we hiked along, we learned that there would be two other lakes that we'd see before we get to Emerald Lake. And we got to the first called Nymph Lake. It was like a baby lake. It was small, picturesque, pine trees all around it, and mountain in the, a mountain in the distance. And you could see some of that reflection onto the lake. Beautiful. It's some of the most beautiful things we'd ever seen. And as we got to that tired and sweaty, we're like, that was worth it. But that was the first lake. We pressed on, and we started hiking, and it got harder, and it got colder, and then we saw snow on the ground. In June, had a snowball fight on a mountain. And finally, we made it to Dream Lake. You don't get the name Dream Lake unless you're a dreamy kind of lake. And this lake was gorgeous. In fact, that mountain we had seen at a distant reflection on the previous lake was closer now, reflecting on the lake. And we're there, out of breath, and our breath is taken away, as my son Levi said. And we're there loving. I mean, this is beautiful, sweaty, tired, out of breath. And as we're almost consumed with the beauty of Dream Lake, we're like, hey, Emerald Lake is still ahead. We pressed on to Emerald Lake, 
And we saw this trail navigating through some trees, and finally we knew we were getting there. And we stepped in, and the trees cleared. There, that far mountain was now there in front of us, and this emerald lake was at the base of the mountain. And that beautiful lake reflecting right there. I mean, the beautiful mountain reflecting right there on the lake. I mean, it was the most spectacular mountain sight I'd ever seen. This 14,000-foot snow-capped mountain right there in front of us. And we looked around, tired and fatigued, and said, that was worth it. It just got prettier and more beautiful the harder we pressed in, church. That is parallel to the Christian life. And we learn from the scriptures that to follow Jesus is promised hardship. But when your faith is in the fire and you hold down to your conviction and you refuse to conform and you refuse to, to, to live for the comfort and you allow the courage to do its thing, it's going to get hard. But the closer and the more you press in, the closer you see God and the harder it gets, the more beautiful he sees because he is a beautiful God. And as hard as things get, God is there holding you through. And you press and you hike. And one day, you will stand at the base of that mountain called our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you say, God, you are beautiful. And holding on to my faith in the fire was worth it. It was worth it. So church, when you are up against the wall, when you're being told to be one way and God tells you to be another, just know that in the perseverance, you get to see God's beauty in ways you can't without it. This is what Daniel was doing and him and his friends were doing as they were pressing in and going closer to their God. And truly, he becomes more picturesque as you see him through the trial. That's what our king is like, church. And his kingdom will always endure. But unlike earthly kings, our king also came down to this earth because he wanted us in his kingdom. And apart from Jesus doing what he did, we couldn't have a relationship with his God. But Jesus said, I'm God in human flesh coming down to this earth to live a life without sin without blemish of sin coming on my life. Jesus would be perfect all the way to the cross. And on that cross, he would take your sin and my sin, your shame and my shame, and die for you and me. Why? So that through his resurrection, we can stand at the base of that mountain called eternal life and look at God in all his glory. That's what our king did for us to get us into his kingdom. That's who Daniel saw. That's what Daniel understood as he searched the scriptures. And that's what God is calling you and I to do. It's not a matter of if your faith will be in the fire, but when. And it's also what you do when it is. Will you have a conviction like Daniel? Will you let God's word inform your life? Will you hold on to your God through prayer and fellowship and say, I won't conform no matter how hot it gets. I won't live from my comforts and drop my convictions. 
I'm going to be fervent in my courage. Church, this is what the world needs today. This is what the United States needs today. Things will not get better in our nation. November is coming. Election cycles are coming. People will continue to spew out what they think is right. And the church needs to be the church and not conform to the mess in our society. But that doesn't mean we withdraw from it. But that means we stand up against it. That we speak the truth. That we choose to love those who hate us. That we choose to not cancel people when they sin against us. That we choose to forgive our enemies. That we choose to repent of our own sin and our own racism. That we choose to to stand up for the poor. That we choose to live out this Christian life and preach the gospel of Jesus. This is what our world needs today. And your faith will be in the fire. But like Daniel, and like every other follower of God since, set your eyes on that mountain, our God, and keep your faith in him because he will never let you down. And just as he sustained them, he will sustain you, church family. Let's pray. My God. We need you so bad. Lord, I pray that as these words establish into our souls, whether we're here in person or watching online, I pray that we would not be passive, God, but that we would respond to you, Lord. Lord, cause faith to rise up. For those who feel like they're in the fire in their workplace, they feel like they're in a fire in their family, God, I pray they'll hold on to you and not bow down. So, oh Lord God, thank you for your church. Thank you for Jesus who died for us. And thank you, God, that you've given us a mission on this earth. We live this life, God, and we give ours to you entirely. Lord, I pray if there are any who are watching right now, who are here, who've never put their faith in Jesus Christ, never turned away from their sins, I pray that today they would trust you. Jesus, they would cry out saying, I believe you. I believe in you. I believe you died for me. Forgive me. I want to live for you. I want a new life. God, I pray they would experience a transformation that only you can do. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Turn up with me wherever you're at, at home or here in person. And typically on most Sundays, we would have our prayer team come forward and we'd have a time of prayer. And we're not going to do that, of course, because of physical distancing. But that doesn't mean you can't respond today. We want you to pray in your heart. Whatever God's telling you to do, say, God, let me, let me not shy away. Allow me to keep my resolve. Maybe it's just the words in this song. You're saying, this is my prayer. I'm going to sing this. I'm going to shout this out. It's all right if others hear you around you. That's all right. But I'm going to shout this out because this is my prayer. Whatever the case, don't let yourself lose this moment without responding to how God wants you to respond. Give him all you got. Let's lift up our voice in prayer and in song.
God, it's so good to be back home with our church family here in person. Thank you, Lord, for opportunities to continue to live stream for those at home. God, we are worshiping you today in spirit and in truth, gathered as a one church in different spaces. God, praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would go out today boldly and with courage, honoring you with all that we are. Help us, God, when we're weak, strengthen us. When we're doubting, uphold us. When we're afraid, embolden us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, before we dismiss you all, I just want to say it's good to see your faces. Those online, thank you for joining us. As we dismiss, we don't want to gather and linger here in our building just for uh, distancing sake. We want to encourage you to go on outside on our front lawn or even at Bell Park. Um, there's a great space there. You can go for a walk with a brother or sister or just get some space to talk and pray. It'd be a beautiful thing to do. Um, we'll be gathered again next week, same time. And we're going to continue to lift high the name of our God. Ain't no pandemic going to stop our praise, right? Ain't no pandemic going to stop our praise. Yeah. So I want to leave you with this blessing from God's word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you, church family. We'll see you all next week. Take care.